0: You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. I have a very special guest co-host today, writer and lighthouse enthusiast Shalana Millard. Hi, Shalana.
1: Hi,
0: Jeremy. Thank you
1: for having me on the podcast today.
0: Oh, you're so welcome. It's so good to, to have you on board here. Uh, how's the weather down in D.C. where you are, Washington, D.C.?
1: really hot and humid and today we had some storms roll through so hopefully this weekend the weather will be much better and hopefully a little cooler.
0: Yeah it's the same here here in Portsmouth New Hampshire was 97 a couple of days ago it was a record high temperature and it's raining a bit right now it's uh, cooling off it's supposed to be in the 60s tomorrow and I'm really looking forward to that so that's enough heat for now. Uh, So I understand you've been a regular listener to the podcast for a while is that right?
1: I sure have and I love it first of all I love podcasts and just to have a podcast that's dedicated to lighthouses is just amazing so um you know if i'm physically going into the office i love to um, download and listen to the podcast you know during my commute you know on the way to work of course i've been working from home um, over the past year so now i can listen to podcasts at home while i'm you know working or i'm doing things around the house so absolutely
0: yeah well that's great to hear that i think a lot of people kind of uh multitask and you know, listen to podcasts while they're commuting or, uh, or washing the dishes or whatever it might be. Podcasts are excellent for that. Obviously, you have a strong interest in lighthouses. How did you get so interested in lighthouses?
1: The way I got interested in lighthouses was um, just by their, their structure and their beauty. You know, I used to see in the bookstore, um, I used to see um, bookmarks with lighthouses on. And I thought, oh, those are so beautiful. And so first, just their beauty and their structure drew me in. And then the more I read about them, just a lot of the stories. Um, and what I, what I really love about lighthouses now are the stories, the stories of the families and the light keepers um, that live, um, you know, in these structures. So that's how I got interested in them. And, you know, people used to tell me all the time, you love lighthouses so much. You actually need to start going to visit them.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That was very similar for me. I started photographing lighthouses uh, a million years ago or actually uh more than 30 years ago anyway, and, uh, and then started to read about them like you did and found out how interesting the, uh, the human stories are at these places. Uh, you've got some great lighthouses in the Chesapeake region, but I understand a visit to a lighthouse that's actually in New Jersey had a lot to do with uh, kind of uh, accelerating your interest. Uh, which lighthouse was that?
1: That's Epstein Lighthouse, um, or as she's affectionately known, Abbey. Mm -hmm. Um, she's the tallest lighthouse in New Jersey and the third tallest in the United States. And one year I was making my way to New York, um, to see a a play, a play on Broadway. And I was with a, a, a group on a bus and on our way to New York, we happened to stop in New Jersey, um, in Atlantic city. And we weren't in Atlantic city long, um, that day, just, um, a few hours. And so as we got off the bus, I saw a sign, I said Epsican, and it was an arrow pointing in the direction of the lighthouse, and it was actually a replica of the lighthouse, and I knew that I wouldn't have time to go exploring and see the lighthouse that day because we were on a very tight schedule, and so I made a mental note um, that I would need to go back to Atlantic City and check this lighthouse out, and so when it was time for me to actually start visiting lighthouses, I kept saying to myself, okay, which lighthouse to visit first, and something just kept drawing me back to this lighthouse that I remember seeing um, the replica of in Atlantic City, and mm-hmm. I couldn't get that one out of my mind. So I knew that Epcot needed to be the first lighthouse um, that I saw. in. so in 2013, um, I went there, and actually on my 41st birthday that year, I actually climbed Epcot for the first time.
0: Wow, and that's a lot of stairs on that one.
1: <laughs> it is. Um, you know, they have a great tagline: "228 steps, one amazing journey." Um, <sighs> that's their that's their tagline, and I love it. And it's so. Um, true, Absecon is an amazing lighthouse. Um, they have six landings in there. And so as you're making your way to the top, you can stop at these six landings and just catch your breath, read some of the signs that are on the walls, catch the different views of Atlantic City. And I'll never forget on my first visit there, as I was making my way up the lighthouse, there were folks coming down and they were smiling encouragingly and just say the view atop makes it so well worth it. And it does. You get to the top of that seeking and they have a group of volunteer light keepers. And so when you get to the top, one of those volunteer light keepers will be there to greet you and give you a card that says, I saw the light mm-hmm. this comm- commemorate you um, making it all the way to the top there. So it's an amazing lighthouse. I encourage anyone that's going to be in Atlantic city um, to stop by.
0: Yeah, definitely. And uh, I have to admit, I haven't been to that one, strangely enough. Um, but you make me want to go there even more it's been on my my list for a while I've seen some New Jersey lighthouses but I just haven't been there yet so
1: Um, you will love it once you do make your way there Mm -hmm. and the thing that I love about it seeking is you can experience it in different ways obviously you can climb it during the day but also uh, several times during the year they will have a full moon climb and so I've done the full moon climb there as well and it lighthouse just takes on a different feel at night
0: Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, they, they do. It's always great being at a lighthouse at night. When you're talking about all the stairs, it reminded me uh, about two years ago, I was at uh, Ponce Inlet Lighthouse in Florida, which has, I think it's 213 steps, so not quite as many as Epsecan. Uh, but I, as I'm uh, you know, slowly making my way up those stairs and pausing to look out the windows, pretending I'm, I'm looking out while I catch my breath, this guy ran back and forth by me like five times up and down the stairs. He was running up and down the stairs. And I I asked him, uh, what are you doing? And he said uh, he was a local firefighter and that's what he does for exercise. I think he said like three times a week, he runs up and down the stairs of that lighthouse five times. So,
1: Oh, that's a great way to get in some exercise.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, you have written a digital book called Journey to the Light, The Adventures of a Lighthouse Enthusiast about your your lighthouse travels, which people can get on Amazon. And uh, I'm wondering what the experience was like uh, putting that together.
1: Oh, I had a, a really great experience um, putting that book together. Um, you know, I think often of a quote from Maya Angelou that said, if you um, if there's a book that you want to read, but you haven't found it, then you must write it yourself. And that's essentially what I did. And so the process of um, writing that book, um, I had a lot of the content together because I had started to document through several blog posts. And things of that nature um some of my visits to lighthouses and so i pulled all the content together i think the most challenging aspect of writing that book for me was actually the formatting um, mm-hmm. through amazon um, when you are self-publishing um, your book you are really on your own in terms of the formatting yeah. and i wanted to make sure um, that i got it right and really the main purpose of that um book i wanted to create something that was light and easy to read you know, for people like me, um, you know, if I'm physically going into the office, you know, while I'm standing um, at the bus stop or on the platform on the subway, I like to have my tablet with me and just have something really light and easy to read. And so that's what I wanted to replicate, which is a light, easy read that people can read if they're standing on the platforms, on the subways or, you know, at the bus stop. And it would be just a really light book, especially in these times as well. I think to have books that are just light and easy um, in you know tough times, and sure. that's what I wanted to do with this book.
0: Yeah, a really light book. I guess there's no no pun intended there, right?
1: <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> but you know, it's it's well written, so you're you're good at that. And I'm wondering if you have any more plans to write about lighthouses.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, when I wrote um, that book, I, my intention was to make it the first in a series, and so um, that book chronicles my lighthouse visits from 2013 to 2016. And so I need to pick up the pace on the next book in this series, but I have started that. And so my next book will pick up, um, you know, my lighthouse adventures from 2017 until currently. So absolutely.
0: Mm -hmm. Sure. And then you can keep adding more volumes on as you visit more lighthouses in the coming years. That's right. Well, again, I I really appreciate your support of this podcast. And I thank you for co-hosting today. I want to tell everybody that today is July 18th, 2021. And this is episode 128 of Lighthearted. Shalana, has anything interesting happened on this date in lighthouse history?
1: Well, yes, Jeremy. On July 18th, 1903, the Scotch Cap Lighthouse on the southwest coast of Unimac Island in Alaska went into service. It was the first light station established on Alaska's outside coast. In 1940, a new concrete lighthouse replaced the original structure. On April 1st, 1946, a massive earthquake struck the North Pacific causing a tsunami that destroyed the lighthouse. Five coast guard keepers were killed in the disaster.
0: Yeah, it was a terrible thing. It was one of the worst uh, lighthouse tragedies in American history. The guest in episode 76 of this podcast was Peter Kaufman who's been researching the Scotch Cap story for years and he's writing a book about it. I'm really looking forward to that that book. It's a fascinating subject. Also on July 18th, 1941, the singer Martha Reeves was born in Alabama. Everyone knows her from her group, Martha and the Vandellas, and their hits like uh, Heat Wave and Dancing in the Streets. But you might not know that she spent a few years on the Detroit City Council. She once said, quote, I will always dance in the street, unquote. So, Shalana, the lighthouse we're focusing on today is Thomas Point Shoal in Maryland. It's uh, kind of in your neck of the woods. Have you toured that one?
1: Oh, I love Thomas Shoal. I've never been in it, but I did have the chance to see it up close from the MV Sharps Island boat. In 2015, I did a day-long boat cruise of lighthouses along the Chesapeake, and we were on the MV Sharps Island boat. And Thomas Point was the second lighthouse that we saw that day. We got to see five lighthouses in the morning and five in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would love the opportunity to actually return um, next time and actually go in thomas point lighthouse but even just seeing it from the vantage point of the mv sharps island you can tell right away just what a, a beautiful lighthouse it is and actually it's structure i love the screw pile lighthouses and yeah. so yeah i um, screw pile lighthouses are some of my favorite to see so i do hope to return there and actually go inside one day
0: yeah i hope to do it too of course the chesapeake chapter of the u.s lighthouse society runs tours there well uh, I talk about that in today's interview uh, shortly, but why don't we go ahead and tell people about uh, today's guest? If you could help me out, Shalana. Hi,
1: sure, Jeremy. Chris Overcash is the senior engineer and deputy director of coastal resilience for EA engineering, science and technology in Maryland. Chris has more than 20 years of experience in the fields of coastal, civil and environmental engineering. His background includes projects in marine and coastal design, dredging, and resource management and climate resiliency.
0: Chris is an adjunct faculty member of the Johns Hopkins University Whiting School of Engineering, and he serves as an associate member of the Environment, Energy, Sustainability, and Health Institute. And he's also a member of the U.S. Lighthouse Society's Chesapeake chapter.
1: Chris is also a longtime maritime enthusiast, which led him to get involved 17 years ago With the effort to preserve Thomas Point Shoal Lighthouse, the only cottage style screw pile lighthouse still in its original location in Chesapeake Bay, he completed an environmental assessment of the lighthouse and designed a landing dock for visitor access and tours.
0: For many years, Chris has also organized and led volunteer days for his company's staff to help support preservation efforts. More recently, he completed a resilience study on how climate change will affect Thomas Point Shoal Lighthouse. That's largely what we talked about when I spoke with them recently, so let's listen to that conversation now. I'm speaking today with Chris Overcash, and Chris is a coastal, civil, and environmental engineer. He's been very involved uh, in the preservation of Thomas Point Shoal Lighthouse. Thanks so much for being with me today, Chris.
2: Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. And I really appreciate the opportunity to, to speak with you today.
0: Well, it's great to talk with you, and how are things in Maryland today?
2: Well I' tell you actually we're right in the middle of uh, the brood uh 10 cicada uprising <laughs> if you will it, and it's it's actually so loud at my house um, that I had to shut all the windows to be able to to do the the recording today it's it's, oh, wow. it's pretty amazing if you've never experienced it but there's a lot of bugs flying around and uh, <laughs> it gets very loud every seventeen years
0: <laughs> yeah yeah no we don't we don't have them in New England, but I have heard that this is a a year for for those. You know, uh, ever since I started this podcast, which is, so we're speaking on June 2nd, 2021. And two years ago, June 1st, 2019 was the first episode of the podcast. So I'm kind of celebrating the the second anniversary this week. And ever since I started it, I've wanted to do one or more episodes on climate change. It's obviously important in general on our planet, but uh, for lighthouses, it obviously has a lot of implications. So we're going to talk about that today. So before we, we speak about that and the effects on lighthouses, uh, just a little bit about your background. What what exactly led you to a career in environmental engineering? Actually,
2: Jeremy, I would I would say the reason that I've gravitated towards engineering, it's kind of more broad-based now than just environmental, coastal and, and civil as, as much as in, environmental. I, I would say it goes back to two things which sparked my interest in the environment, and that involved one out of um, being able to go to my uh, grandparents' cabin in the woods in Southern Pennsylvania every weekend when I was growing up. And then the second part of that is my nearly lifelong interest in maritime naval history, as well as sailing. I actually sail a bit on on Chesapeake Bay when I have the time. Although in the midst of raising two two daughters who are 14 and 15 right now, so that does take a little bit of time away from, from some of those pursuits. So those those two items led me down the path to engineering, as I wanted to be able to provide positive uh, influence on the environment, but also to help protect the cultural and historic resources too, such as lighthouses, of course. And then the coastal resiliency aspect that I'm very involved in now uh, is really a combination of those two items. Uh, I actually remember first learning about the potential impacts of climate change in college in the in the, uh, the mid '90s. In in um, Basically, I've gravitated towards providing solutions to those impacts over the last 10 years of my career, and now I am serving with my company EA as their lead engineer for the coastal resilience work. Also, I guess before we before dive into some more detail, I wanted to just point out, as you can imagine, the prospects of helping protect our coasts from ongoing changes in coastal dynamics is, is now quite a challenge. The most important aspect is to keep in mind that the solutions can be a mixture of hard engineering, it's what people normally think about things such as seawalls, but uh, it's also important to incorporate the nature-based strategies as well, such as restoring coastal wetlands and forests, because they can uh, mitigate wave impacts and storm surge just as well as some of the harder structures. So this combination, I think, is really going to lead the way for later in the century and into the next. Also, another, another key item there is important as we face this challenge in the U.S., to understand that there are actually centuries of expertise to draw from, from other places like the Netherlands that have been fighting sea level issues for hundreds of years.
0: Sure. So we'll all have to put our fingers in the dike, I guess, to, to solve this. Maybe not. So to speak. Right. The proverbial dike. But uh, your involvement with Thomas Point Shoal Lighthouse, in particular, goes back, I think, about 17 years. So what led you to get involved with the lighthouse?
2: The initial initial items, actually, my um, company at the time had a contract with the city of Annapolis as the city and the U.S. Lighthouse Society, Chesapeake Chapter, were looking into acquiring Thomas Point. So we were engaged to do actually an environmental survey of the lighthouse. And from that involvement, that's when I had the chance to start working very closely with some of your, your key members down there, including uh, now Vice President Henry Gonzalez, and some of his team that are still there today, including Captain Howard Lewis. From that point, I offered some pro bono assistance at the time, which led to the construction, the design and design, construction of the visitors dock out at Thomas Point, which was uh, completed in early 2006.
0: They got a great team there with Henry and uh, John Potvin, Bob Stevenson, and, and others. Uh, it's an amazing what's been what's been done there. So. It's one of the most important lighthouses in the in the country. One of the one of the few National Historic Landmark lighthouses in the country. It's uh, it's unusual because it's the only screw pile uh, lighthouse still in its original location in Chesapeake Bay. There used to be a lot of that type of lighthouses uh, there in the bay. So, what what do you uh, find especially interesting about Thomas Point Shoal Lighthouse?
2: Well, uh, it's a few key things, I would say, Jeremy. So like you mentioned, it's uh, basically the last of 42 screw pile uh, lighthouses in Chesapeake Bay in its, in its original location. Besides just that fact, it's, it's uh, I think, as probably maybe every one of your listeners knows, it knows uh, from looking at pictures of it, it's an incredibly beautiful structure. It's often said it's the most photographed site in Maryland. Uh, even though it is is uh, a mile and a half offshore, and then besides that, I mean, to me, Thomas Point is really truly the definition of coastal re- resilience. Having you know this structure that doesn't—I mean, at first glance, doesn't look all that robust—and to think that it's been enduring everything that nature could throw at it for almost
0: 150 years now is is just incredible. I understand you've organized uh, company volunteer days uh, for the lighthouse for many years. How did that get started, and what types of work does your volunteer team do there? Actually, after the completion
2: of the visitors, Doc, um, our team had assisted with a few other opportunities for U.S. Lighthouse Society in Chesapeake Bay, including looking at Hooper uh, Strait Lighthouse and Craig Hill Channel Upper Range Lighthouse. These didn't really work out in, in detail for larger projects, but it did lead to some other discussions about being able to provide some more assistance with upkeep at Thomas Point. And I actually, I believe it was uh, Henry Gonzalez that first suggested that we could perhaps put a team together uh, on an annual or potentially biannual basis to come out and assist. And I thought that was a great idea. We've been doing that ever since, it's usually annually. In recent years, I've been working with, with some of the newer team members that are just spectacular, like John Poppin, like you mentioned earlier, the structure of what we do out there is it's usually it's limited to about 15 folks at a time due to space on the lighthouse and most often we're assisting in um, general maintenance such as scraping and and painting but we have helped do some special type treatments actually one of the things we did a few years ago was help to build and deploy bird spiders which are actually devices to keep birds from landing on the roof Mm. uh, with with a wire structure and then we We've helped with some of the historic equipment, such as davits, to get those uh, back into working order. But one other point there, and I would say that the volunteer effort that we put together with our company is not only a great way to assist Tom's Point Lighthouse with the Upkeep. It is also a great way to get new folks engaged and, more importantly, excited about lighthouses uh, in, in the preservation efforts, which you know, I'm sure most of your listeners know is a, is a challenge or for any lighthouse. So this is, this is a good yeah. way to get, get folks engaged. For a quick example, one of one person that had came out there several years ago and was bitten by the dreaded lighthouse bug, this uh, Mandy Shenhelm has since become lead engineer for Maryland for her company, Green Solutions Incorporated. And she has ended up being instrumental in the latest round of grant funded work to support the lower structures. So I mean, that's just one example. Mm-hmm. And um, in this construct also, is given the opportunity to get younger folks involved. And actually, this has included my daughters who are now 14 and 15. And it's, it's great to get them out there to be able to assist and to truly understand what a, a cultural treasure the lighthouse is. So
0: well, that's great. That's all great to hear. Did you call them bird spiders? The bird deterrent? Is that what Spiders? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So they, they look okay. kind of like spiders, but it's really just wires that are tied into like a central wooden point um, and those are mounted on the the roof to Hmm. to to keep the seagulls from landing now sometimes they're effective and sometimes they're not
0: yeah yeah well that seems (laughs) to be true with all the different kinds of bird deterrence we've had a problem with uh, cliff swallows nesting on Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse my local lighthouse here we had netting put up to prevent that so we all love birds but uh, it doesn't help uh, lighthouse preservation they'll find they find someplace else to to land or, or nest or whatever when you do those things. So uh, you mentioned the visitor's dock a few minutes ago at Thomas Point Shoal uh, that you designed. Uh, what special challenges were involved with the design of a visitor's dock at the lighthouse there?
2: Well, yeah, it's, a, it's a, a few things that stand out from when we put that together. So the biggest challenge was to create a free standing piling wood structure dock basically in the middle of the bay with just a the gangway connection to the lighthouse so basically lightly built and able to withstand the elements out there just like the lighthouse uh, the other challenge was being able to geotechnically prove that driving the six piles that were necessary for the visitor dock wouldn't interfere with the screw piles that have been sitting down there for 150 years so that was that was important it was also very important to make sure that that the appearance of the visitor dock wouldn't Want to interfere with the historic look of the lighthouse. And so one of the things we did there was to produce a rendering before it was constructed. One of my other little hobbies is I do watercolors. So I did a, a watercolor rendering to just show the uh, historic trust folks that we weren't talking about something that was going <laughs> to screw up the, the, the view shed out there.
0: You mentioned your painting, uh, which is interesting to hear about, but people aren't seeing this, of course, on the, as they listen to the podcast, but where you and I are speaking via Zoom right now, I see some ship models behind you. Do you make ship models? Do you build them yourself?
2: Yeah, that's that's also one of my hobbies. Again, I don't have too much time these days with raising some family members, but it did it more in my younger years and maybe building some more ship building and ship model mm-hmm. building in the
0: future. They look really nice. So let's uh, move on and talk about the climate resiliency assessment you recently completed for the Chesapeake chapter of the U.S. Lighthouse Society for Thomas Point Shoal. Uh, Let's uh, cut to the chase. What is the bottom line for the future of Thomas Point Shoal Lighthouse? So, well, that's that's a
2: great question. And I'd kind of like to start off the answer, actually, instead of going forward, going backwards. Many of your listeners will probably know the story of Thomas Point Lighthouse in its its battle with uh, climate and the elements. So in, in its first two years of service, it was significantly damaged by ice floes, and to the point where the, the keepers had to evacuate to to land over ice. And the the the, the um, Fresnel uh, lens was damaged. From that point, there were adaptations put in place, which included uh, an ice break and riprap to the north and south of the lighthouse, which solved the issue. Um, there hasn't been another challenge like that almost 150 years. To put in in that frame of reference, the lighthouse really is a climate warrior already. So it's facing some different challenges. When you're looking at the potential impacts from climate change in, say, mid Chesapeake Bay or anywhere, it's important to keep in mind that framework of adaptive management, what can be done in what time frame to to correct the, the possible effects. So the first thing you need to do is to assess the expected climate impacts, match that with the infrastructure, whether you're talking about the elevation of the landing docks or the, the main cottage, and then you can frame options for moving forward. And, and that leads you to, again to that frame of a, an adaptive management plan, because those impacts are going to occur over time. So in looking at the actual projections from climate impacts for Maryland, um, we used for our study, which was actually completed last summer, Um, The most uh, recent uh, projections for Maryland, and when you're talking about sea level rise, we framed it in the 50th percentile, most reasonable, um, but we also provided a 1% kind of worst case, there's only 1% chance it's going to get to this high. So just as a snapshot in 2050, that 50th percentile is 1.2 feet of sea level rise and 2100 uh, up to three feet. And the 50th percentile. So that's only one part of the equation. Of course, you have to look at storm surge, wave impacts. So again, there's a lot of variables to consider. You know, we took all those into comparison. I should say, it's also important to to also talk about the highest water level ever seen on Chesapeake Bay. And that was actually in 2003 with Hurricane Isabel, with uh, an elevation of 6.43 feet. So even in 2100, the most 50th percentile is not, not up to that level. So there's still some, some good years out there for Thomas point right in the middle of the bay.
0: Let me ask you, is, is there any good news for the lighthouse in your study? Well, I guess what you just said is is sort of good news that it's not like it's not going to be gone, probably not going to be gone uh, like next year or something. Anyway, what, what do you think the good news is for the lighthouse?
2: Well, that's a good point because when it comes to storms, there you never know what you're going to get, especially right. in the frame the framework of climate change and expected changes to things like hurricanes. And I should kind of frame that when it comes to climate impacts, sea level rise is something that the science is still evolving, but we're pretty sure, or can put a pretty straightforward number on it. When it when it comes to larger storms, such as hurricanes. In, in higher winds, wind gusts, periodic type storms, those are less defined. We, you can put a, a range on it where you, sh- you can show the maximum. But in, in the case of hurricanes, for example, uh, in the mid Atlantic, there's a projection that there could actually be less hurricanes as we move through the century. Uh, it just may be that they would be stronger. And of course, there's other projections where there would be more, but m- most are trending towards a, a more powerful. And of course, that's going to then create storm surge issues. Currently, right now on the, on the Bay, the 100-year storm surge. So what would likely to be happen once every 100 years is a, is a basically a 4.99-foot uh, rise. And that's always going to be based on a hurricane-type impact. So that's the frame of reference there. The good news for the lighthouse, again, expected impacts are occurring throughout the century. Uh, If you do look at those 1% water levels, it does look pretty daunting. Because you're talking about the the actual cottage of Thomas Point is at 14.8 feet above uh, mean higher high water right now. But the visitor stock I was just talking about, the underside of that is only at 1.6 foot. I guess the good news is that the main structure is going to be protected for many years, knock on wood. But the lower structures, which could be elevated, May be impacted or will be impacted sooner. I guess another thing to keep in mind when it comes to, to the good news part is the fact, just touching on the fact that Tom's Point Lighthouse is one of only the 42 screw piles still on its its original location. And if you think about that, those other 41 that have been removed or dismantled, they weren't dismantled because of climate change. They had battled the elements and got and gotten to the point where their life expectancy had run out. So in that context. Thomas Point Lighthouse you can already say has won the battle it it has it's a winner it's it's been out there longer than any of those other locations and if need be um there would be plenty of places on land side to to relocate it in the future but uh, again i don't think we're quite there yet there's there's mm-hmm. many many years of opportunities to to go see it
0: and a lot of that battle that the other screw pile lighthouses that were moved to shore a lot of the the battle against the elements that you talked about was against ice, ice flows, and that, that kind of thing, which uh, is not as, as bad as it was. Is that correct? Right. So,
2: yes. Yeah, some of the other notable findings from from our report, um, definitely going to be less ice going forward because of the rise in temperature. Um, like I discussed before, there's going to be more wind and, and potentially more extreme storms. Another item with the the wind, the fact that the lighthouse has withstood hurricane winds for 150 years, um, although the percentage, the strength of wind may go up percentage-wise, it's not, I would not think it would be a, a point where it's going to jeopardize the structure. So the Bay region is actually, the land is subsiding, which has caused, in Chesapeake Bay, sea level rise that actually occurring about two times the rate at other, or the average rate throughout the world because the land is actually subsiding. And it's, there's a lot of geotechnical reasons for that, but that has, uh, over the last hundred years, the sea level rise, 40% of it has been from land subsidence, but it's going to be, that will be less of a factor going forward because the, the climate induced sea level rise is going to outpace that going forward.
0: So what are some of the uh, things that can be done at Thomas Point Shoal Lighthouse to mitigate the effects of climate change?
2: So we in, in our report that we put t- together, again, it was completed last summer, we have listed a number of items or, or options going forward. And I, I alluded to a couple of those a few minutes ago. One would be to be able to raise that visitor stock. And there's also a lower landing platform and an intermediate landing platform that also could be raised uh, to get them out of the immediate impacts of sea level rise as you go into the century. And those could be raised to keep it on station as, as is to be able to still land land visitors if that's a goal going forward. Uh, another key item when it comes to being able to mitigate or adapt to climate change is to constantly monitor, which the U.S. Lighthouse team does anyway. But it's important to, to monitor the these ongoing impacts of climate, because even though we do have projections, um, certainly... As you get closer to, if you're talking about 2050 or 2100, as you get closer to those years, you're going to have more a better refined uh, understanding of what that future water level is going to be. So if you can continue to monitor uh, that as well as the actual structure itself and make sure that that the beams and cross sections are being maintained, uh, making sure that anti-corrosion coatings are in place and holding up because you'll see also that. The and that impacts the understructure is going to change of course as, as water uh, goes up so make sure that those elements that are those portions of the understructure that weren't exposed are watched more closely.
0: You mentioned a few minutes ago the the idea uh, of possibly moving the lighthouse to shore you said that there's probably no lack of uh, good places uh, for it to go if that happens and uh, as you talked about, several of the screw pile lighthouses that used to be on the Bay have been moved to museums and, and so forth. It seems like the you feel the outlook is pretty good, but do you think there's much of a, a possibility of the lighthouse being moved to shore in the foreseeable future?
2: I think that's really going to be dictated, again, how quickly we see these changes occurring. You know, if it moves towards a, a worse case scenario for the year 2100, that's almost to a a seven foot sea level rise. So I think if we start seeing that, then certainly I think that would be a step that may may need to be taken.
0: So in addition to the really uh, major threats from climate change, you have other things uh, going on there too, of course, other challenges. And you've been a hands-on volunteer at Thomas Point Show Lighthouse yourself. We have rust and corrosion threatening the integrity of the structure uh, how how big a threat is that kind of thing do you think
2: when it comes to the the corrosion aspect i could just talk about the, the splash zone is going to be changing but i guess the increased threat from climate change isn't so much a, a key item there it's i guess the constant corrosion aspects that that occur out there but i should say the the, the cast iron screw piles themselves they're very resilient to to corrosion the the main uh, screw piles have, again, been in place for 150 years, and they are in fine conditions. It's pretty amazing to think that's the case. So cast iron is more resilient to corrosion than some of the more recent steel components. Some of the, the major upkeep that's occurred out there in the last year and a half was to replace some steel components that were just 30 years old because they had significantly corroded. So that's, that's something um, that it is ongoing out there, but I don't think it's so much exacerbated by climate change. I should mention, though, that climate change is actually causing the oceans to become more acidic. So the pH is actually coming down slightly so that it may cause, you know, a deterioration and corrosion a little bit faster than normal. But percentage wise, it's not going to be too perceptible to, to, to folks. And we're not we're not talking like a whole drop pH number. It's just going to be you know, tenths or hundreds.
0: I'm just wondering about your your overall view of things, the way things are going with climate change. I know that's a big question. But, you know, like a lot of people, I, I try to monitor what's going on in the news uh, with all that. Uh, it seems as if in, in uh, the last couple of years or so, the change is happening more rapidly, uh, possibly than what uh, a lot of experts had, had predicted. Is that the case? Uh, am I right about that? What do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's that is a great question. The answer is that we do have a better understanding of the science and what needs to be done now. I mean, the truth is, as we alluded to, it's going to be a really a huge challenge to protect uh, our cultural heritage in the coastal zone, as well as critical infrastructure and natural resources. And I kind of like to think of it this way. I mean, the human race is always up for a challenge. Both my grandfathers were in World War II. Um, they had their generational challenge and they got through it and they were very successful. They met that challenge. And I like to think of climate change is really shaping to be our test for at least one of them. I think it just got through one in the last year with with COVID, but climate change is certainly one of those generational tests. And you know what? I really believe that we will meet this challenge on all fronts. We just need to start now and take the right steps,
0: you know, move positively forward. Well, that's a, a good good way to look at it. I, I sure hope you're, you're right that we're up to the challenge. So, of course, uh, our, as our listeners know, lighthouses exist in lots of different settings. You know, you have some on the mainland, some on islands of various sizes. Sometimes there's rocky shores, sometimes sandy shores. Some lighthouses are out in the middle of the water, just uh, surrounded by, by water, Thomas Point Shoal is uh, kind of unique these days, being a a screw pile lighthouse out in the bay. And uh, sometimes uh, there there are a lot of caisson lighthouses offshore that are sunk down into the seabed and completely surrounded by water. And you've got the the older sort of granite wave swept tower. So there's a lot of different circumstances. I'm wondering if you have a sense about which types of lighthouses will be most threatened by climate change in the coming years?
2: I think it really comes down to location. I should say my company has actually been engaged nationwide for uh, entities such as National Park Service and DOD and the Coast Guard, uh, as well as some private clients, and looking at coastal resiliency for other lighthouse sites. Uh, Recently, that has included uh, Bear Island Light in Acadia National Park, uh, as well as Ocracoke down in North Carolina. To your point, all types of lighthouses will be vulnerable to the effects of ocean forces if they become submerged, either partially or complete, or you know, or the base or the foundation is impacted by sea level rise or frequent, more frequent storms. Um, especially if they were never designed to, to face those kind of threats. So, um, I think the key there is that they all would be vulnerable, and it's first very important to assess uh, for each location what they expected. Uh, water levels may include, including sea level rise, base flood elevation, wave, and storm surge, and then just factor that into when you expect to see those impacts. And it might be that if you look look at the projections, perhaps it's it's going to be a surprise and would be, you know, post year 2100 that you would even see those effects because you have some coasts that are quite the opposite of Maryland that instead of subsiding, they're actually, uh, rising. You see some of that on the, on the coast of Alaska, where it's it's actually rebounding and coming up, almost counteracting some sea level rise effects.
0: I'd like to just touch on the uh, the Great Lakes. That's a, a big subject uh, related to climate change, too. You have uh, lighthouses on the Great Lakes being threatened by rising lake levels in, in recent years, especially really the last, I think, two or three years. Is that something you've looked at as well? Uh, yeah, actually, it,
2: in, um, we've been engaged in projects in the Great Lakes, and that provides definitely a unique challenge compared to the uh, ocean coast environment. And like you, you mentioned, uh, 2019 uh, was actually the highest uh, recorded level on, on the Great Lakes, such as Lake Superior specifically.
0: It has significantly dropped
2: since that point. When it comes to climate impacts on water levels in the Great Lakes, it's one of those items where the science can't put their finger on it specifically. They they can only say to this point that they expect water level fluctuations to be much more rapid than in the past. Because on the Great Lakes, you would see trends like a five to ten year trend where it would be lower, and then perhaps um, high. This current trend for a high water levels last was about a five year, five to six year trend, mm-hmm. and so they think it's going to be much more. Um, fluctuating uh, going forward. So that really presents a challenge uh, for coastal design because, you know, to uh, for, for instance, to combat that very high lake level two years ago, there was a lot of investment out there to you know shore up some of the defenses and stop some of the coastal erosion. However, it may be 20, who, who knows how long till it gets that high again. So you've invested that money to protect that, but it may be 20, 25 years before it, it even gets back to that water level again, which is the complete opposite of the, the ocean coastal environment where you're going to be experiencing high tides or, or storm surge on an increasingly rapid uh, framework. So, yeah, the, the Great Lakes are, are definitely a challenge. We've, we've interacted in many of the actually for the National Park Service on so many of the coastal parks there looking at the, that issue.
0: Uh, let me ask you, uh, from your viewpoint, do you feel that lighthouse organizations are doing enough uh, so far to uh, prepare for the effects of climate change? It's going to uh,
2: be based on specific location and organization. You know, for instance, obviously, in the case of U.S. Lighthouse uh, Society, the Chesapeake chapter, uh, obviously, they thought it was important enough to do to execute a resiliency study for Thomas Point. So they're kind of ahead of the curve. but I think that's, that's really the, the key item is to be able to get out in front of possible issues and, you know, pr- produce or take a look at expected uh, water levels. And then you can kind of frame if there's, there's a potential uh, impact. You know, it's something that my company or I can assist with if somebody hasn't done it before or if, if folks wanted to take a look at our resiliency study for Thomas Point. Um, that certainly could serve as a template or, or you know, possible framework for one of those plans. Uh, and again, I think the best step is to you know do that first step of planning to you know, be able to understand what adaptive plans may be necessary.
0: I'm very happy to see that the uh, the team at Thomas Pointshell is being proactive about all this. I I would like to see more lighthouse organizations, you know, think in that direction. Uh, Trinity House in England a couple of years ago did a study uh, on climate change and. Uh, It's possible effects on, I think, especially a a couple of their, what they call sea washed lighthouses, the older granite offshore lighthouses. So they've certainly been thinking about it. But obviously, uh, to me, it's right at the top of the list of the important challenges we're facing in, in lighthouse preservation. Let me ask you one more question. Of course, this is for bonus points. So get ready here. Are you optimistic about the future of lighthouse preservation in the face of climate change?
2: Well, actually, I think that goes back to one of my previous answers about, you know, challenges. And actually, I am very optimistic that we will rise to that challenge to protect these treasures on our coasts. Um, And again, you know, I'd say the first step is to get an assessment and, and then you have the knowledge to be able to carve out the best future steps in an adaptation plan if it's necessary. And, you know, I'd say again, certainly happy to help if I can in those discussions.
0: That's good to hear. It's it's encouraging because I'm not always uh, that optimistic, but I I try to be and uh, you give me hope for sure. So, uh, Chris Overcash, this is all uh, so important and so interesting. And I applaud all the work you've done on uh, the subject of uh, resiliency and climate change, but and also your work as a volunteer for Thomas Point Shoal Lighthouse. You know, we need we need both of those things. Uh, We need people looking at these important challenges. We also need uh, hands-on volunteers who get out there and get their hands dirty and do the actual work that's needed. Uh, So thank you for all that you do and thank you for being with me today, Chris.
2: Well, thanks very much, Jeremy. And yeah, once again, thanks for having me on. Look forward to talking with you in the future.
1: To find out more about Tours to Thomas Point Show Lighthouse, go to uslhs.org and look for the Thomas Point Show link on the front page. You can also check out the Chesapeake chapter of the U.S. Lighthouse Society online at chesslights.org.
0: That's cheslight dot org. They uh, have done amazing things there at Thomas Point Shoal. It's one of the country's great lighthouses. I plan to do more podcast episodes in the future about the effects of climate change on lighthouses uh, in general. If anyone has any suggestions along those lines, uh, you can always email me at jeremy at uslhs.org. So, Shalana, do you have any lighthouse visits lined up for the rest of this summer?
1: oh i can't wait to get back out there for more lighthouse um visits i've missed them so much over the past year Um, my last visit to a lighthouse was actually january 5th of 2020 i happened to make a return visit to piney point lighthouse um i wanted to i've been there before um but they had Um, a Christmas exhibit there um, called A Very Retro Christmas and so I went to Piney Point in January 2020 on the last day um, that the Very Retro Christmas exhibit um, was on display to the public and when I went there I had no idea that that would be Um, my only lighthouse visit in 2020 because we were going to be hit with the pandemic. Um, I just knew that I would get more visits in um, in 2020. But so I can't wait to get back out there. I'm looking to do a return visit, um, hopefully to Hooper Strait Lighthouse. Mm. um, That's in St. Michael's. I've been there before, but this spring I noticed on their social media, they said that they opened up the part on the second floor so that folks can get a closer look at one of the Fresnel lenses that they have. Mm. On display there, so I said, "Oh, that'll be a great um, reason to return um, to Hooper Strait, there on the grounds of the um, Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum in St. Michaels." And so I'll make a return visit there, uh, maybe in September, to you know get that closer look at the Fresnel hoods that they have there. And mm-hmm. then one that's been on my list for a while now, and um, ho- I hope to get to it this year. We'll see. Turkey Point has also been on my radar for a while, so definitely. Um, I definitely want to get back out there um, in September, hopefully August or September for more Lighthouse visits. I've missed them so much over the past mm.
0: year. Yeah. Oh, me too. You know, It's about the same for me. I've barely been to any since early 2020, uh, except for Portsmouth Harbor Light, which is 10 minutes from my home here, and I'm very involved with it. I've been giving tours there lately. Uh, and whaleback lighthouse which i'm also involved they had one visit there by boat but um I'm about to do some trips coming up including a visit to straitsmith island lighthouse off of rockport mass one that just uh, opened for tours fairly recently the house is all restored so i'm looking forward to seeing that and also tarpaulin cove lighthouse uh which is on noshan island and the elizabeth islands off cape cod i'm going there in a few weeks uh, a few of us are doing a boat trip there it's a it's unusual very unusual group to be open somewhere i've never been inside i'm looking forward to that so i want to remind everyone you can learn more about tours memberships uh, the lighthouse passport program and everything the u.s lighthouse society offers at uslhs.org remember that donations support this podcast and all the preservation and education efforts of the u.s lighthouse society
1: if you listen to this podcast using apple podcast please rate and review us
0: and we salute everyone out there who's working to save lighthouses and any kind of history. It's a real pleasure having you as co-host, Shalana. Uh, I really have enjoyed it. I hope we can do it again sometime.
1: Oh, thank you so much again. I really appreciate you having me on today. And I definitely hope we can do this again. Thank you.
0: Oh, we will. As always, thank you so much for listening and... Keep a good light. Shine, everywhere
1: I'm gonna let it shine everywhere I go I'm gonna let it shine everywhere I go I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine